0: Affordable and accessible. Don't wait. Call one eight 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 recovery today. Ooh, la, la. <whistles> On behalf of Melania and the entire Trump family, we wish you a very merry Christmas and a happy new year.
1: This is Michael Cohen and you're listening to the Mea Culpa podcast. Last week, President Donald Trump granted another slew of sleazy and illegal pardons which were met with near universal revulsion as he continued his onslaught against the rule of law and the norms of presidential behavior. But this is Christmas, Trump style, and he's made a list checked it twice and decided who's been naughty and who's been nice. At the top of that list were Roger Stone and Paul Manafort, his fellow co-conspirators in the Russian investigation who were pardoned explicitly for their ongoing commitment to Trump's own code of Omerta. In 24 hours, just the past 24 hours, this president has vetoed pay for the military, stalled relief for millions of you, and issued the most toxic tally of pardons we have ever seen 26 new Trump pardons tonight gifts to many convicted criminals that you know, well, who did horrible things, many admitted it. And then he left to go golf in Florida, further down the list were scores of political cronies and shady business associates, including Charles Kushner, who received his own get out of jail free card list week as well. It's a list that includes a rogue gallery of convicted liars, corrupt congressmen, and child-killing war criminals.
0: Axios, which often reports directly leaks out of the White House, says Trump telling an advisor he's gonna pardon, quote, every person who ever talked to me. They're saying Trump isn't just accepting pardon requests, but blindly discussing them like Christmas gifts to people who haven't even asked. One source felt awkward because the president was clearly trying to be helpful, but the advisor didn't believe They had committed any crimes.
1: Representing a stunning and unprecedented abuse of executive power, it's just one more example of how Trump has taken the norms of presidential privilege and deformed them until they are grossly unrecognizable. Like everything else he has touched during his term, the pardon process itself has devolved into a corrupt and transactional circus, with Trump as its ringmaster.
0: Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, step right up and seize the monkey key.
1: Even the process in which these pardons are to be granted has been turned on its head by the president. Under Justice Department guidelines, pardons are normally not even considered until five years after an applicant completes a sentence and are granted in recognition of the applicant's acceptance of responsibility for the crime and establish good conduct. That said, there is most definitely method to the madness. We are watching two simultaneous issues unfold with these pardons that hew closely to how Trump views the presidency the first of which relates to the Russia investigation and his obsession with dismantling its very existence by pardoning those figures who were found guilty of a host of serious crimes. Now keep in mind, both of those individuals didn't cooperate fully with prosecutors. Both of those individuals had pardons dangled in front of them, obviously tacitly so that they would not cooperate. They didn't cooperate. They didn't roll over on the president. The president refused to rule out pardons for them. Paul Manafort told Rick Gates, according to the Mueller report at one point, that they would be taken care of. The president said that Roger Stone could sleep well at night at one point. They clearly knew they were angling for a pardon so as not to incriminate the president. And now the president has pardoned them. This is as fundamentally corrupt as a pardon gets. In the statements surrounding the pardons of Roger Stone and Paul Manafort, it was easy to hear the voice of President Trump bellowing in the background. Stone was treated very unfairly by prosecutors. His former campaign chairman Manafort is one of the most prominent victims of what has been revealed to be perhaps the greatest witch-hunt in American history. Like Archie Bunker shouting at the television, Trump is using this one sacred process to air a litany of grievances and doesn't give a shit about the damage he's causing to the rule of law. In his mind, he's the victim, and everyone else should fucking pay for what he has had to endure. You know what they say? Revenge is like serving cold cuts. In a bristling analysis from the New York Times, Peter Barker writes that Trump is using the one, all, but absolute power vested in the presidency to rewrite the reality of his tenure by trying to discredit investigations into him and his compatriots. In essence, by pardoning these men, Trump is pardoning himself. If there is no one guilty of the crime, then, in Trumpian logic, there was no crime committed. But the entire process is rotten from the head down and appalling to anyone with regard for the rule of law. Trump's pardoning power was what allowed these men to obstruct Robert Mueller's investigation in the first place. But that is only part of the reason. The very nature of Trump's transactional approach to life is also on display. Of the 65 pardons and commutations delivered as of last week, all but five had close ties to Donald Trump our law and order president has turned his power to grant pardons into an almost industrial level of corruption and cronyism.
0: Uh, Congressman Schiff, uh, your reaction, please, first uh, to this news of these pardons to this evening. They're grotesque. Uh, They're morally repugnant, and they're exactly what you'd expect of Donald Trump. In
1: past administrations, the Justice Department served as the conduit for this process and helped the president review a variety of cases to determine their eligibility for clemency. Instead, the White House has built a spreadsheet with hundreds of names from individuals seeking presidential pardons and outsourced the process to a host of special interest groups with ties to the president. They include corrupt and convicted Republican congressmen like Duncan Hunter and Chris Collins. Or the pardoning of four private security contractors working for Blackwater who were convicted of murder in 2014 for killing 14 Iraqi civilians, many of them children, and sentenced to life in prison. Trump has close ties to Eric Prince, the Blackwater founder and brother of Betsy DeVos, his Secretary of Education. This alone caused a wave of international disgust and repudiation, and threatens to further destabilize the region.
0: It's an exceptionally dangerous message, and it's one that we're gonna have to embark on a repair job over the next couple of years to have better leadership at every level within the military to say this is not okay. We're gonna have to have a reset uh, on January 20th.
1: In the overlapping Venn diagram of sleaze that defines Trump world, There is a special section dedicated to Boy Prince Jared Kushner. The pardon granted to his father, family patriarch Charles Kushner, by the president last Wednesday, was a late Hanukkah gift and something the younger Kushner has been working towards most of his adult life. Kushner was convicted in 2004 of 16 counts of tax evasion and one count of retaliating against a federal witness who happened to be his brother-in-law. Kushner hired a prostitute to sleep with him at a New Jersey motel, filming the encounter via hidden camera, and then sent the tape to his sister at their daughter's birthday party. Nice guy. Ironically, it was Trump stooge Chris Christie who prosecuted Kushner and just last year called the crime loathsome and disgusting. But Jared Kushner worked hard for his father's pardon. Surely, if you sell your soul to the worst person alive, you should get something in return, right? I mean, if a guy hires a prostitute to seduce his brother-in-law and videotapes it and then sends the videotape to his sister to attempt to intimidate her from testifying before a grand jury, do I really need any more justification than that? But Trump does not care one iota. Week after week, we watch as he debases himself and the presidency, to the point where not only does the emperor have no clothes, but he's turned himself and the presidency into a fat fucking pig in a poke, rolling around in a pool of mud, squealing about rigged elections while burning down the government as he leaves office.
0: That boy is a P.I.G. pig.
1: All we can do is sit back and watch what happens next. But this is just the beginning of a wild month of destabilization, and where it stops, no one really knows. Trump's weekly list of mercy for his most loyal subject is the last gasp of a pathetic and defeated man. In recent weeks, he has attacked the very foundation of American democracy, only to be beaten back and humiliated in the courts. He has found himself in almost every circumstance on the outside looking in, which is an unusual place for a pathological narcissist used to being the center of the universe.
0: I don't know how to put this, but I'm kind of a big deal.
1: There will be no second term for Donald Trump. Nor will there be any investigations into his opponents by special counsel. America is exhausted by Donald Trump. We are tired of his tweets. We are tired of his divisiveness, the insanity and the chaos. Like a guest who has overstayed their welcome, we simply want him to leave. Just fucking leave. But Trump isn't taking the hint. Instead, as power inexorably slips from his grasp, the defeated president finds his pardon authority to be the one weapon he can deploy without any checks or balances. As the Times wrote, it is the most kingly of powers conferred upon a president by the Constitution, one that is entirely up to his discretion, requires no confirmation by Congress or the courts and cannot be overturned. Quite simply, Trump is flexing and will continue to do so as he finds himself more and more on the periphery. Shut the fuck up, Donnie. And now, for the main event. For those of you with your head in your hands thinking, I can't fucking take it anymore. I hear you loud and clear. It's almost over, I promise. That said, it's probably going to get a whole lot worse before it's all over. So I understand the anxiety and the trauma that this whole moment is causing for millions of people. I find myself enraged watching Trump's further degradation of the presidency as he sets free all his crooked friends. It's literally driving me fucking insane that this man gets away with everything. Granted, Trump has surrounded himself with talented enablers who are paid to keep him out of jeopardy. And having been his trusted fixer for more than 10 years, I am painfully aware of the furious paddling that goes on beneath the surface to keep Trump's fat ass out of prison. But fear not, karmic retribution lurks just over the horizon. While Trump plays king and feels invulnerable to federal indictment, the state and city of New York continue to sharpen their knives and wait for January 20th.
0: Can you dig it? Can you dig it?
1: There's an old saying by Sun Tzu from The Art of War that reads, If you wait for the river long enough, the bodies of your enemy will float by. And it's the mounting evidence being accumulated by Cy Vance in the Manhattan District Attorney's Office and Tish James, the New York State Attorney General, who will get us there. It's with this hope in mind that I am pleased to introduce my next guest, Glenn Kirshner. A frequent MSNBC commentator and legal analyst, Kirshner is the host of a hit legal podcast, Justice Matters, and the host of Capital Crimes on MSNBC. Kirshner has an acute sense of justice and what it means to be misappropriated and corrupted and has been one of the loudest voices in excoriating Donald Trump for his abuse of power throughout his administration. So let's listen now to that conversation. On December 13th, You tweeted about a Washington Post op-ed shaming the Republican congressmen who have supported and enabled Trump's baseless and seditious election fraud claims that, and you quoted, these politicians attempted to steal an election from the people, from voters. How can they now be allowed to serve? We the people. Are they not the very word traitor? Discuss with me for a moment how you actually hold these individuals accountable for their actions when nearly half of the electorate believes that the election was stolen. Now, while I agree what they have done is both shameless and, frankly, it's criminal, I'm at a loss for how we might actually do something about it.
0: Discuss this with me. Sure, Michael. Thanks for having me on. And let me start by saying for your your viewers, your listeners, um, I'm I'm an apolitical person. People may not understand that about me. Because when I'm on MSNBC or when I'm doing my daily YouTube videos, it seems like I'm always beating up on the Republicans. That's because the Republicans have been committing the crimes for the past four years. But I grew up in a household where we didn't do politics. My pop was a high school football coach in New Jersey. He coached at Teaneck, Lodi, uh, Montville, Neptune, Passaic. He coached Jack Tatum back in the day. We didn't do politics. I didn't do politics growing up. As a federal prosecutor for 30 years, I wasn't permitted to do politics because I operated like every other federal government employee under the Hatch Act, which prohibits political activity by federal government employees. So as a jumping off point, I'm not a political guy. If I see the Democrats committing crimes, I'm going to go just as hard after the Democrats. So against that backdrop, you know, I, I do view the attorneys general, the 17 who signed on to that seditious, frivolous, baseless lawsuit attacking the results of our elections. I called them the seditious 17. I called 126 Congress men and women who signed on you know, the seditious 126. And your question, how do we hold them accountable That's the $64,000 question because, you know, sedition is the violent overthrow of the government. What these people have been doing is sedition light or sedition minus one or a kissing cousin to sedition because they're trying to stop the incoming government from lawfully ascending to power as we have elected them to do. So it may not technically be sedition, So we may not technically be able to prosecute them for sedition, but here's what we have to do, Michael. And this has been the theme of everything I have said and done for the past couple of years. You know, For 30 years as a federal prosecutor, I would live in the grand jury at times. Now I was a trial guy, um, tried more than 50 murder trials. I tried RICO cases in federal court against the largest gang in the history of the District of Columbia, Um, but I was in the grand jury A lot. And what you do in the grand jury is you aggressively, honestly, ethically and apolitically, but you aggressively investigate crime. And all day, every day in this country, we're prosecuting drug dealers and gun runners and bank robbers in federal court and personal
1: attorneys to the president.
0: Yeah. And now we have a whole batch of political criminals and and quasi-political criminals. We have family members of politicians and lawyers to politicians. And what we have to do beginning in January, easy as one, two, three, go into the dang grand jury every day, issue subpoenas broadly, and investigate what kind of offenses these people have committed Rudy Giuliani, you know, the Ron Johnsons of the world who are still propping up Russia, contrary to all common sense and, you know, all sort of reasonable views of the evidence. You investigate them all. We can't now at this moment announce, here's the charges we're going to bring against the seditious politicians. Boom, 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 because we don't know that's putting the cart in front of the horse. But if we get in the grand jury and do what the Department of Justice and what the prosecutors are supposed to do, you investigate it all fairly, aggressively and apolitically. And then you ask the grand jurors, sitting as the conscience of the community, "Okay, what charges do we believe are supported by the evidence that we've managed to develop before you all? I did this hundreds of times as a federal prosecutor and Michael I've all, and I was the chief of homicide at the U.S. attorney's office in D.C. I learned how to be a homicide prosecutor from Bob Mueller, who was my chief of homicide in D.C. before he left to go to San Francisco to the U.S. attorney's office. A couple of years later, I took over as chief. He not only taught me how to be the, the a homicide prosecutor on the line. He taught me how to run the homicide section in a very real sense because I learned from him. I always told our prosecutors, I've supervised 30 assistant U.S. attorneys who were the homicide prosecutors in D.C. Unfortunately, on the murder front, business was always very good in D.C. Um, I always told them, you are never more vital as a federal prosecutor than when you are deciding that the evidence does not support a charge, when you're declining to charge somebody after a full, fair aggressive investigation, because that's our job. Our job is not to railroad people. Our job is not to try to identify a target and by any means necessary, bring a criminal charge against that person. Our job is to honestly, aggressively and apolitically investigate every flipping crime we suspect has been committed. And then you let the chips fall once all of the investigation is in before the grand jury. That's what we have to do to these people who have worked so hard to destroy our country, but our Glenn, republic, democracy. But Glenn, you know that that's
1: not what happens today. You know that if, in fact, this is what's going to happen, they're going to go after the seditious 17 and they're going to start to bring charges against the Ron Johnsons of the world, the Rudy Giuliani's, who I truly believe is a fucking criminal. I believe that he is a criminal. He comes from a criminal family. He deserves to be put in prison. But the biggest problem, the biggest problem that I see is that prosecutors today, and this is a line I'm stealing from, I believe it was Harvey Westgate, when he said, it's not about prosecuting anymore. Now it's all about convictions and conviction rate. And when you get a federal prosecutor turning around, staring you dead in the face, and telling you, I have a 98% conviction rate. And if you think you're going to be part of that 2% that's going to get away from this, good luck when we're going to freeze all of your money. We're going to hit you with forfeiture. We're going for super restitution. We're going to turn around and co-indict your spouse or one of your children, right, for a crime. And you're sitting there, and this is the first time that you've ever been involved in the system your head spins, you have no idea what to do, and so you throw your hands up. The problem, though, is that the the country won't allow this to happen to these politicians, it's my opinion, simply because the other side, the Republicans, will now say, well, you're just abusing the power that you're claiming that we abused, and this is a never-ending cycle, almost like the Hatfields
0: and the McCoys. If we decline to hold the criminal politicians accountable— after what we've seen them do in the harsh light of day to this country, to the American people, to the immigrants who came here, right? Yearning to breathe free, only be thrown into cages and have their children thrown into other cages. If we decline to do the hard work of holding them accountable, then this is going to sound hyperbolic, but it's not. We're slouching toward the end of our republic. If we've learned nothing by giving Richard Nixon a walk, that, you know, if we have not learned that if you want to encourage more crime in the future, decline to hold the criminals accountable today. If we stopped investigating and prosecuting bank robberies, everybody's going to go out and rob banks. And if we decline to prosecute today's political criminals, Trump, Barr, Pompeo, Mulvaney, the rest of them, if we decline to hold them accountable, we're done as a country. That's my opinion.
1: You're right. And I agree with you. And let's look on Monday. The psychotic Lynn Wood tweeted that Trump would soon start jailing people for thwarting his ambitions and in choosing whom to imprison victims party affiliation would be a consideration. Trump then went ahead and stupidly retweeted on this assertion. This is obviously an attempt by Trump to foment fear and even violence from his MAGA army towards those who oppose him. Talk to me for a moment how Trump may try to seek revenge against all of those who wronged him using a weaponized attorney general willing to do his bidding or by appealing to his wider army of fanatics. Are we careening towards something that's really truly frightening to our democracy?
0: it depends on what happens over the next 30 days and how, um, how much more lawless, how much more dangerous Trump chooses to get and who lets him do it. But when you talk about what might he do, well, nobody knows better than you, my friend. He might take somebody who is on supervision and gin up a reason to put that person back in prison, notwithstanding the fact that that person has violated no laws, and no condition of supervision. When I saw him do that to you through the Department of Justice, you know, it's a special kind of sin when people in power, government officials who are sworn to enforce the laws of the country, right? And protect and defend the Constitution of the United States uses the power of government to retaliate against their enemies. And that's what Trump has done. He did it to you. And he tried to do it to McCabe. He certainly rewards his friends like Mike Flynn and Roger Stone by nefariously using the levers of government and the power of the Department of Justice to reward not just his friends, his criminal associates. These are his criminal associates. So, look, I'm a scorched earth kind of prosecutor. And when I say that, I hope I mean it in the best possible way. Because first and foremost, I believe that our most important mission as a prosecutor is to protect the rights of defendants. We don't zealously represent them. That's the job of the defense attorney. But you know how we protect them? And anybody who worked with me over the past 30 years can tell you, I preached this for the last 30 plus years. This is not some, you know, post-prosecution conversion I've had, the way you protect the rights of defendants is by making sure everything you do, everything your prosecutorial team does, and everything your law enforcement agencies do. And in D.C., you know, we got this crazy alphabet soup of law enforcement agencies. We're the only prosecutors in D.C. at the U.S. Attorney's Office, but we work every day with not only the Washington D.C. Metropolitan Police Department, the local police handling the murder cases with us, but FBI, DEA, ATF, Park Police, Capitol Police, Secret Service, Uniform Division, U.S. Marshal Service, Amtrak Police, Postal Police, Smithsonian Police, and it goes on and on and on, right? I've gone after police officers who broke the law in their zeal to try to hold people accountable that they thought ought to be held accountable. So, Anyway, against that backdrop, as I was saying before, if we decline to go after these people for, for what they did, then, then we're done. How much crazier is Trump gonna get in the next 30 days trying to go after his enemies or reward his friends? I mean, the reward his friends part, it's gonna start raining pardons, right? It's gonna be pardon-palooza very soon. I think that's one reason Bill Barr stepped out when he did because he was associated with all the Iran Contra pardons because he's the one who said in for a penny, in for a pound. When President George H.W. Bush asked him, should I just grant Cap Weinberger a pardon? Should I do more pardons? And he is on record saying, Mr. President, when it comes to pardons, in for a penny, in for a pound. Pardon them all. And Bush pardoned six, including including five who had already been convicted at trial.
1: Well, um, Glenn, on December 8th, you actually posted a video for Justice Matters discussing Lindsey Graham's move to ensure that Biden's attorney general does not investigate Donald Trump for his many, many possible crimes. Now, Graham will use the matter as a GOP litmus test for whomever Biden nominates to the seat, ensuring a protracted and contentious battle for that seat. I'm curious how you see this playing out in the next administration, and hope as a former prosecutor, you could walk me and the listeners through how you would bring a charge against Donald Trump that actually sticks.
0: Yeah. So, first of all, with respect to Lindsey Graham, I, I see it as an abuse of his office and his position as a senator to announce that he and the Senate Judiciary Committee will vote to confirm no nominee for attorney general if that person intends to investigate Donald Trump for the crimes he's committed. I find that a stag. It's a cover up, a criminal cover up in plain sight. And it's a, an abuse of his office as a united states senator that that there's i don't i think that's inarguable right why he's doing it i mean as a prosecutor i'm always looking for motive right i don't have to prove motive i never have to prove motive at trial so i used to tell my juries if if one dude standing on a street corner walked up to another dude and shot him dead and i didn't have a single shred of evidence about why what the motive was doesn't matter it's still murder right But as human beings, human nature is such that we want to know what motivates people. What would motivate Lindsey Graham to abuse his office in attempts to shield Donald Trump from future investigations? The only thing I can come up with, Michael, and I welcome other thoughts on this, is Lindsey Graham told us all on CNN that the Russians hacked his emails. We know That the Russians also hacked the DNC server and then weaponized and basically released through WikiLeaks those emails to hurt Hillary Clinton's chances of being elected and to help Donald Trump. What we also know is that we've never seen a single email from the Russians that they hacked from Lindsey Graham's emails. What does that tell us? It tells us the Russians are using it for another purpose. Might that be what motivates Lindsey Graham? to say and do the crazy things he says and does to try to protect Donald Trump, you know? But to answer your question, how do you prosecute Donald Trump? You know, where to begin? I I went after a lot of killers in DC that had multiple bodies to their credit, right? I wouldn't call them serial killers, but they killed person after person after person. The sad reality is so many of the people I ended up prosecuting were impulsive kids with guns who pulled triggers at the slightest provocation. And a lot of them racked up a lot of bodies to their credit. My goal as a prosecutor was always to try to bring the strongest one or two murder charges first, right? To try to hold the killer accountable, to try to take him out of the community so he couldn't continue to hurt the citizens. And I would sometimes let other cases and other charges go because you can only confine a man for but one life. Donald Trump has committed so many crimes. So many crimes. Where do we begin? You know, maybe if we want to talk chronologically, and I'm not even going back to New York and what Cy Vance is investigating with, you know, tax fraud, insurance fraud, banking fraud. I'm sure there's just a whole rack of crimes back there that hopefully Donald Trump will be held accountable for. But how about the campaign finance violations that you committed with him and for him and for his benefit? As a prosecutor from the outside looking in, when I see the evidence that was assembled, at least the evidence that was publicly reported, together with having a witness who is already on the record, you talking about what Donald Trump did. I think a, a novice prosecutor can walk into court and in inside of a couple of days, successfully prosecute Donald Trump for campaign finance crimes and a conspiracy to violate them, right? Conspiracy, as you know, is nothing more than an agreement between two people to do crime and one overt act, one step toward the commission Of that crime. It's not complicated. So, I mean, for openers, you can tag him with those campaign finance violation crimes. And then, Michael, 10 counts of obstructing justice meticulously documented by Bob Mueller in volume two of the Mueller report. One of the things I did is I took a case that Bob Mueller had indicted in the grand jury. He was promoted to chief of homicide. So I went into court and tried his case. I saw firsthand how Bob Mueller investigated a case in the grand jury. What I can tell you, as I was a prosecutor for about 10 years at the time, I thought I knew my way around a grand jury investigation and I was blown away by Bob Mueller's work investigating and indicting cases. So I could just like, you know, we would say, look, he gave you a Cadillac at trial. All you got to do is roll it into the garage. And that's really all I had to do with a case involving the shooting of a police officer in D.C. because Bob had investigated and indicted him. He meticulously documented as many as 10 felony obstruction of justice charges in volume two of the Trump Russia report. Right. You can walk into court and prove those in your sleep. And that doesn't even get us to the soliciting a bribe of President Zelensky and the conspiracy it looks like was involved there. It doesn't even get you to witness tampering of Ambassador Marie Yovanovitch. And frankly, you, I remember the threats against your father-in-law, was it?
1: It was against my wife, my children, myself, my father-in-law, my entire family. And what Trump knows is the fact that he has a large following on social media. I know he just did that to Eric Swalwell as well. People don't realize just what That social media platform that he controls, that MAGA army, what it is when you are on the other side of Donald Trump's ire, because you have no idea whether one person, a hundred people or a million people want to come after you and your family. And he says it in a way that you would certainly be better prepared to talk about how a mobster will talk about it. He doesn't give the overt act of take him out. Whack him, right? Kill him. He doesn't say that. He gives the head nod. He gives the wink. He gives the expression. He lays things out there in in a way that you're not going to be able to just say, "Well, Donald Trump gave the order, right?" But Donald Trump gives the order. It's him blowing that dog whistle that only his MAGA followers and those that are, you know, um, part of the Trump cult are willing and capable of, you know, of
0: producing. And that's what the RICO laws are all about. That's why they were enacted, to get the boss, the mob boss, in this case, Donald Trump, because the Trump organization, and frankly, his cabinet, the executive branch, uh, at least the ones who are directly plugged into him, looks a lot like a RICO organization to me. And as you say, he doesn't directly give the order. He doesn't have to give the order. That's why we have the RICO laws in place, because the guy at the top, one, doesn't get his hands dirty personally, and two, doesn't give orders. He says, Boy, it, was a sh- it would be a shame if that's an order. And that's exactly what the RICO laws were designed to get after. Um, so, you know, a- a- and somebody asked me, I remember when I saw that tweet, I think it was like, look at, you know, he, was, he was tweeting about you. And I think he added something like, look at his father in law or words to that effect, right? Correct. So that's correct. I was on air. Exactly I was correct. on air, and somebody asked me, What would be the first thing you would do as a prosecutor if you were dealing with Michael Cohen as a witness and you saw a tweet like that? I said, The first thing I would do is I would send my agents out to collect up Michael and his father-in-law and his family. I would bring them down to the U.S. Attorney's Office, and I would tell them about the witness protection programs we have available to make sure we protect them against those threats that were just tweeted out by the president. That would have been my first move, right? Because like you say, he's got an army of supporters, many of whom, you know, call themselves, I'm the Proud Boys and the Wolverine Boys, and I'm the this and I'm the that. And frankly, they're all weak individuals for the most part. If they were strong, they wouldn't have to strap long guns across their chest to go to the Michigan Statehouse. But Glenn, Glenn, they they do. They do.
1: But Glenn, they do. And that's the problem. That's the danger. And Donald Trump fucking knows it. He sees it on television, and it gives him a hard-on that he sees these That these MAGA followers walking with AR 15s strapped around their backs, walking and taking over courthouses, marching in the streets like a legitimate gang, right? Like an MS 13 type gang. And he loves it because he believes that he is now the 10 star general of this MAGA army. That he's the Kim Jong-un that can do whatever he wants, and he could direct any of these people in order to create a real problem for those people that he has a problem with, i.e. me, i.e. so many, so many others now. But I want to, to talk about something. You recently discussed on your show how the courts held against Trump and Giuliani's seditious acts against the Constitution— I'm still not satisfied though, and I believe that there needs to be consequences for how Rudy abused the legal system. Is there a scenario where Rudy and fools like Sidney Powell and others who argued these baseless claims in court can be held accountable? Or were they careful enough to only lie in public and keep their claims within the statutes of the law
0: inside the courtroom? So they should be held accountable by being investigated by whatever state bar they are a member of as a lawyer. And I believe and and you probably know as well as anybody, as well as I know, state bars investigate claims of attorney misconduct all the time. And they are notoriously slow when it comes to working their way through that investigation. To a final result, which can then be appealed by the lawyer who's being investigated, and these things can literally go on for years before a lawyer is sanctioned or ultimately disbarred if the violation is egregious enough, but they take forever. Now, I, I fully expect that the Rudy Giuliani's and the Sidney Powell's will be disbarred someday if they are around that long and if they continue to practice law for what they have done. Now, prosecuting them for filing frivolous lawsuits is another matter altogether, because sadly, we have people file frivolous lawsuits for nefarious reasons all the time. And the courts did what I would expect the courts to do, throw them the heck out. And when you think about I don't think we have taken enough um, note and been heartened enough by the fact of, of how solidly the courts have held, because, you know, Judges appointed by Republican presidents and Democrat presidents in, in federal courts all ruled against Donald Trump, Rudy Giuliani. State judges who were appointed by Republican governors and Democrat governors. State judges who ran for elected judicial office as Republicans and Democrats. They all laughed Donald Trump and Rudy Giuliani at a court. And that shows us that the courts really have held and the courts really are strong And I think we can take some comfort in that because we have an executive branch that's lawless. We have a legislative branch where half of the elected congressional officials choose to stand with a criminal president rather than with the American people, rather than with their own constituents. So half of the legislative branch in worth a darn, right? At least we still have the judiciary. The courts have held, the courts are strong, and even Donald Trump's own draft picks ruled against him not only in the tax case back in July, but in denying these frivolous, seditious election challenges.
1: Yes, but I know that you've called Trump loyalists the hashtag Rico gang, and I know that that was partly in jest, but do you ever see a possibility where an entire administration can be tried under the Rico Act, for crimes of sedition, because they're all in this shit together. I mean, I know how Donald Trump acts. I know how Donald Trump behaves. He'll put himself to the right, but he'll send all of his sycophants to the left, and he'll tell them to go do something. And if they do it, that to me sounds like it could be a charge under the RICO Act. Do
0: I expect prosecutors in the future to bring a RICO prosecution against Donald Trump and all of his co-conspirators, his aiders and abettors, his accessories after the fact, and that's one that I don't think people pay enough attention to. But there are elected officials who are accessories after the fact all day long. Do I expect a RICO prosecution to be brought against them? If I had to bet a buck of my own money, I don't bet, I would probably bet nobody is going to be up to that task not because the law or the evidence doesn't support it, but because I don't know that we have the political will to do it. And shame on us if we don't have the political will to do it. We have seen them attempt to not overthrow a a government presently in power. We have seen them criminally, unconstitutionally, seditiously try to stop a lawfully elected administration from taking power. We should go after that as a RICO conspiracy, at least investigate it in the grand jury. Because once you start start dropping grand jury subpoenas, you're gonna have some people get, get tight real quick. And then once you start charging people based on the evidence you've fairly developed in the grand jury, people are gonna flip, right? And the way to get inside a conspiracy is to flip the co-conspirators. I could investigate a conspiracy from the outside looking in and I can figure out only so much without an insider, without a co-conspirator, without a cooperating witness. It's really tough to get at what was going on inside that conspiracy. But all we have to do is investigate this in the grand jury. And then we're going to start to learn a whole lot more and we're going to start to see who we can hold accountable.
1: Right. But in the end, true justice for Donald Trump may not come the way that you're referring to, something we talked about before. But it may come, again, not at the federal level, but instead from the state and the local courts. Now, while Lindsey Graham is attempting to shield President Trump from the incoming Biden attorney general, what he cannot shield Trump from is Cy Vance in Manhattan's DA office and the New York Attorney General Tish James. Because those cases, and I can tell you emphatically, those cases are advancing. And I'm curious what you believe will be the first of these non-federal investigations to land Trump with an indictment.
0: I assume it's going to be Cy Vance because of everything that I believe he's been collecting up on the financial fraud front. Um, And I'm glad you brought up the states because on the one hand, I hate, to concede that you know what he's done all these federal crimes as the head of the federal government the president the ceo of our nation he's done all these federal crimes but you know what we're going to let the states clean up that federal mess for everybody that cuts against the federal prosecutor I was for for decades but he's committed crimes in New York and I submit in all 50 states and I'm glad you asked that question because he has killed people. He has criminal liability for what he did on the corona front. And Michael, I know nothing if I don't know how to put together a murder case, including a murder case that has, has a novel theory of homicide liability. I did it in D.C. a couple of times. We pushed it through the courts and we got the appellate court to adopt it. The urban warfare theory of homicide liability in Washington, D.C., when two men arm themselves, go into a crowded public area, put, putting all innocent bystanders at risk and start shooting at each other. In 1999, we pioneered the homicide liability theory of urban warfare. Anyway, it's a long story, but the point is I believe Donald Trump has liability for coronavirus deaths at one of the lower levels of homicide, either involuntary manslaughter or negligent homicide, different jurisdictions call it different things, but it only takes three elements. There are only three legal elements to prove. Number one, Trump acted in a grossly negligent manner in the way he mismanaged, never mind lied about, which we now know as a result of the Woodward tapes. Never mind. We want to get everybody infected to get herd immunity or, as Trump would say, herd mentality. But the first element of that low level of homicide liability is that Trump did something in a grossly negligent manner or. He had a duty to do something and he failed to do it. And his failure was a product of gross negligence. His conduct fulfills both of those theories on element one. Element two, his conduct, his grossly negligent conduct was reasonably likely to result in death or serious bodily injury to another. When you're dealing with a deadly virus, you can check element two in a hot second. Element three, which some people think is a sticking point, but for a career homicide prosecutor, it's really not. Element three is that given element one and given element two, he thereby caused the death of another. People will say, aha, you can't prove he caused the death of anybody because causation conjures up notions of, okay, you fired the bullet that killed the guy. You stabbed the guy. You strangled the guy. You bludgeoned the guy. You poisoned the guy. That's not what causation means under the law. Causation in the law is defined as conduct that is a substantial factor in bringing about the death of another. That's the legal element of causation. Donald Trump's conduct was a substantial factor in bringing about hundreds of thousands of coronavirus deaths. We've lost our brothers and sisters in all 50 states. He has homicide liability in all 50 states. And if attorneys general and state prosecutors don't start bringing charges against him, shame on us.
1: You know, I'm not so sure that that's even going to be necessary. I mean, while I totally agree with you, the blood of those who are now gone is on his hands. And those sycophantic followers and cabinet, the people you call the Rico gang, It's on them and they have to live with that, though I don't see anybody prosecuting them on that because, well, let's just say it's going to be a difficult case. There are other cases that these state prosecutors can charge Donald Trump with, starting with as what you brought up, campaign finance violations, tax evasions, misrepresentations to banks, insurance fraud, bank fraud, and a litany of other crimes that Travel from California all the way to New York, anywhere that Donald Trump has a piece of property, anywhere that his fat ass has ever sat. I truly believe that he has committed a crime. Take Trump University, that had ten thousand students into it. Each and every one of those students are in different states. Take his Trump, um, uh, the Trump Network, the one with the vitamins and all that other that multi-level marketing. Each and every one of them are in different states. And then you could take his Trump hot dogs and hamburgers and his vodka and all the other failed, Trump mortgage, all his failed opportunities. And this opens him up to all forms of liability. Anytime that he was looking to buy a piece of property, right, and he provided to the bank a misrepresentation of his assets, all of these are the things that the Tish James of the world and the Sai Vances of the world should be looking at. And while I agree with you that he should be held accountable for his actions or his inactions as it relates to Corona, I believe that the easier cases to prosecute are these—the ones that they went after. I don't disagree
0: for. with. They're easier. You're going to have paper trails, right? You're going to have you know something other than witness testimony. Um, but death is different. Death is different. And that's why, as a matter of principle, I believe he needs to be held accountable for these avoidable coronavirus deaths. That blood, as you say, is on his hands. But And don't you think, I agree with you, Michael, he's going to be held accountable for a whole rack of crime, right? And don't you think that's why he is holding the, the country hostage right now? Don't you think that's why he is holding the office of the presidency hostage and injecting so much anxiety into the American people because he thinks maybe his last play is to try to negotiate an exit package, right? Okay, I'll step down. I'll give it to Joe Biden. I won't call my supporter to arms provided you give me a walk federally and in all 50 states. Now, I don't think that's feasible. I've tried to negotiate global plea resolutions of cases it ain't easy even in you know the easier cases but don't you think that's part of why he is holding he's trying to grift money off his base right he's still getting 10 10 bucks and 15 bucks and 20 bucks because he's fighting the election results that's a grift right but don't you think that's why he is holding on so tight he thinks he's going to be able to leverage it to his advantage
1: yeah i think right now he's manic and he's trying to do whatever he can in order to increase his chances, as you stated. But there's no way someone like Governor Andrew Cuomo is going to provide a state pardon to Donald Trump, because I truly believe that Andrew Cuomo despises every single thing that Donald Trump stands for, including what he said about New York, how he's treated New York, which was supposed to be his home. Everything that Trump has done as it relates to New York has been to hurt Andrew Cuomo. So I don't believe that he's going to get any assistance from, from Cuomo on that. But when we were talking also about individuals that are complicit with Donald Trump, part of, again, your hashtag Rico gang. I mean, look at Michael Caputo, that fucking moron. Right. Talking about herd immunity. When you have a doctor like Anthony Fauci, an expert in the area telling you that herd immunity is about the dumbest thing that you can do. And then you get guys like Matt Getz, another complete asshole, or Mark Meadows or Jim Jordan and Lindsey Graham. I mean, these people are just the it's almost like they're brain dead and that they have ignored the fact that science is real that this coronavirus is real. And what hurts me very much is every day when I turn on the television, whether it's CNN, MSNBC, Fox, ABC, NBC, they always have like a little counter at the bottom and it's a death toll. And it, it, it upsets me so much that anybody has died as a result of a virus. Not in America, it's not supposed to be that way. We have the greatest the greatest minds in order to create the vaccine, which they did, which so many different pharmaceutical companies did. But we wouldn't need 100 million dosages if Donald Trump would just put a fucking mask on that fat-ass face of his and stop these super spreader events simply because he's willing to trade your life, your mom's life, your father's life, your sister, your brother, your cousins, your neighbors, your friends, Or for what? So he could claim that the economy is the greatest it ever was in history, and use that as a stepping stone in order to help to advance his election. I mean, he traded life for his position, and it's disgusting. And all of them, all of them, should be indicted. In the list of
0: coronavirus culprits that you just rattled off, let's not forget Mike Pence, because Mike Pence was the head of the coronavirus task force who stood by silently. As we now know from the Bob Woodward tapes, while Donald Trump lied to the American people, he was telling Woodward, Bob, this is bad. Do you know how much more dangerous this is than even your aggressive strains of flus? Do you know how easily transmitted it is? Bob, it's airborne. And these are, these are quotes, darn near quotes from those tapes. Bob, it's airborne. It's not even, you don't even have to touch somebody. You just have to breathe. All the while he was walking to the cameras and saying, all is good. You are all safe. Nothing to see here. Nothing to worry about. Disappear like a miracle. Five cases down to 15. Spring, it will be gone. He was lying to the American people and he was putting us in harm's way. And what did Mike Pence do? Nothing. He was the head of the coronavirus task force. He knew the true state of affairs, and yet he let the president run us all, you know, out into oncoming traffic that is the coronavirus. Mike Pence is culpably involved with the rest of the coronavirus crew that you just listed.
1: And then there's more. But I'd like to get your take on Bill Barr and his fairly muted resignation, because I find it curious that, after carrying the president's water through Mueller and the impeachment and dozens of you know these small scandals or would-be scandals and you know Trump's daily trespasses on the Constitution as well as obstructing his own Justice Department, Bill Barr decides to put his foot down about election fraud. Right? All of a sudden, about election fraud. This is after he claimed that there would be widespread fraud prior to the election, and instead. He very plainly repudiated the president. What do you think was happening here? Because Bill Barr doesn't do anything out of moral character. He was obviously playing some type of a game or has some of kind of a game in mind. He even went so far as to call Trump's tweets a deposed king ranting. Why is this man who has, in my estimation, the zero moral compass, suddenly finding a need to take a moral stand?
0: So... The, the thing that first came to mind when I saw Bill Barr break with the president and say there is no massive systemic election fraud that would undermine the election results, the absolute first thing that came to mind is Bill Barr already has his pocket pardon, right? Because there's no requirement you make a pardon public unless and until you need it. Um, so, I do not believe Bill Barr would have recklessly broken with the president if he still needed his pardon. And Bill Barr needs his pardon now because we could tick through the list of crimes that he's committed in plain sight. Um, So if, if he didn't already have his pardon, I doubt he's getting one now, even with that pathetic cheerleading letter of resignation that looked like it was written by Trump himself, right? You're so big, you're so strong, you're the best. Just pathetic piece of fiction that it was, I think Bill Barr, you know, had his pardon granted already because any number of pardons could have been granted that we don't know about yet. Um, Just like we have something called pocket immunity. You can grant a pocket pardon. Um, And I also thought maybe, just maybe, and, and the doubters will have to stay with me on this. Maybe there are some things Bill Barr is unwilling to do like overthrow the incoming administration. Maybe he's unwilling to do it. He's willing to commit all sorts of other crimes. He's used he's willing to weaponize the criminal justice system to punish Trump's perceived enemies like you and reward his criminal associates like Flynn and Stone. And the stone commutation was a criminal act. We need to challenge that beginning in January. But maybe Bill Barr was unwilling to go down as the attorney general who helped, you know prevent the um, incoming administration from taking power. And the other thing that I, I thought of after I thought he's got his pocket pardon is that remember back in the early 90s when he was George H.W. Bush's attorney general, um, Bush was deciding if he should pardon anybody for the Iran-Contra affair, for the crimes that were committed in furtherance of that particular scandal. And I believe Bush was thinking about pardoning Casper Weinberger, the Secretary of Defense and Bill Barr on record now, he's admitted to this, he said, Mr. President, when it comes to pardons, in for a penny, in for a pound. And they granted six pardons. And that was at Bill Barr's urging and counsel. And and that has haunted him. I mean, your reputation is forever wedded to that once you are, and William Sapphire dubbed him, not the attorney general, but the cover-up general in the New York Times as a result of in for a penny, in for a pound. But maybe he didn't want to again associate himself with the pardon palooza that's coming, if he were still the attorney general, he would still bear some responsibility because in the Department of Justice, we have the office of the pardon attorney. So all of these things in theory are supposed to be vetted by the staff at the office of the pardon attorney and recommendations are supposed to go to the president. I don't pretend the Department of Justice is working the way it worked for nearly a quarter of a century when I was there, or you know it it should be working but maybe Bill Barr didn't want to be associated with what Donald Trump is about to do.
1: Yeah, I think it's more nefarious than that. And I'm working out some thoughts in my mind, which I will ultimately share, you know, on television, in the press, but I think it's much more nefarious than that. I don't think it has anything to do with pocket pardons, because we do know that if you accept that pre-pardon, you're obligated to testify, whether it's to open hearings, whether it's in a court, and you can't invoke your Fifth Amendment right against self-incrimination because you can't be charged. So I think it's much more nefarious.
0: Let me add one footnote to that, because I have gone on air and said, and the prevailing wisdom is you get a pardon or you get immunity. Well, then your Fifth Amendment right against self-incrimination evaporates and you can be forced to testify. Can I tell you in practice what happens? And I got a lot of crafty defense lawyers who I've talked with about this. Here's what'll happen. If we try to compel somebody to testify after they've gotten a presidential pardon, they'll say, okay, well, you extinguished my, my risk of being prosecuted federally. But you know what? I have some exposure in states too for some of what I did. So you got to, you got to give me state immunity and state pardons because I retain my Fifth Amendment right against self-incrimination in connection with possible state prosecutions. So there's always a way for them to try to weasel out of that black letter law rule that if you get a pardon, you can be forced to testify.
1: Except I want you to remember that this isn't about Bill Barr because the only person that Donald Trump gives a shit about is Donald Trump. So do I think that he gave Bill Barr a pocket pardon, a pre-pardon? Absolutely not because he knows that that would put him at risk, both federally as well as by the state. And even if there's 1% chance that that pardon to Bill Barr could hurt Donald Trump in any way, shape, or form, he's not doing it. He's just not doing it. But let me ask you this then. Do you see the, the acting Attorney General Jeffrey Rosen appointing a special prosecutor to investigate both Hunter Biden and election fraud at the behest of the president? And if so... How does this now impact the Biden administration coming in? And what does this do for Donald Trump as he moves his shadow presidency to Mar-a-Lago that here on Mea Culpa we call Magistan?
0: Yeah, I certainly hope we don't see these weaponized special counsel being appointed by Jeff Rosen, I will say. Rachel Maddow did a brilliant piece a couple of nights ago on how Rosen's fingers were in everything Bill Barr did that was wrong and unlawful and corrupt and violative of the rule of law. While Rosen has been there, admittedly, for only 18 months, Rosen is not a DOJ guy. He's got no idea what we at the Department of Justice are really all about. So do I I I, 51% 51% of me says, I don't think we're going to see more special counsel appointed. And I certainly hope we don't because it would be just weaponizing the whole concept of a special counsel. Um, so that that's I think my answer is I hope Rosen doesn't go there. I don't think he's going to go there. But with this crew, you know, the, the RICO crew, you never know.
1: Yeah. And there's no doubt in my mind that that's in Trump's head right now thinking how can he continue to weaponize the justice department that will live longer than when he's ousted from the white house now another question for you then why do you think that the president hasn't fired christopher ray right as of yet or do you believe that that's coming because some believe that trump has held off at the urging of his lawyers who believe that firing christopher ray puts him in legal jeopardy of being charged with retaliation Um, as the firing would clearly be seen based on Ray's unwillingness to do his bidding. You think that's coming?
0: I am surprised it hasn't already come. Uh, Now, Chris Ray may know some things about Donald Trump that he has, you know, never been able to pull the trigger on. So that's probably, you know, Donald Trump in a way that I never will. Maybe that's part of the calculation in Trump's mind. If I fire him, what can he do to hurt me? But I will say, like you, I'm kind of surprised because Ray seemed to become another perceived enemy of Donald Trump. So I'm kind of surprised he hasn't just to be punitive, just to be a you know jerk about it, um, fired him. So again, I guess at this point, 51% of me says he's probably not going to fire him in the last 30 days. Um, but I, what what do you think?
1: Yeah, I. I don't know whether he sees Christopher Ray as anything that firing or keeping him there is doing any benefit to him or causing him any harm. But the second that he believes that Christopher Ray will cause him harm, that's when he'll make the decision whether to keep him or fire him. You know, Donald Trump does believe, in some cases, keeping your enemies close is the smartest thing. In other cases, what he believes in, and this is a lot, distance yourself, denigrate the person, and then move on. Because that's what Donald Trump does. First, he'll distance himself. Oh, you know, uh, I never liked the guy. I don't really know who he is, right? And then he'll be like, Christopher Ray is a criminal. And then he'll start with criminal Christopher. And he'll come up with another stupid moniker that he gives to people, right? And that's what I believe, personally, that there's not really much right now in the last 30 days that Christopher Ray could do to him and so Trump has much bigger issues to deal with at the moment than thinking about Christopher Ray that's just the way that I see it
0: as i say 51% of me says he lets Ray ride it out um, because he's not sufficiently aggrieved at Ray at this point or because Ray has got some goods on Trump that he doesn't want exposed i don't know
1: you know, so let me ask you this then, because many people have said, yourself included, that you foresee January to be a month, as you put it, reigning pardons. Let's go back to the whole pardon issue. The question, though, is how broad and how blatant these pardons will be? Because beyond his immediate circle of enablers and his sycophantic friends, which of Trump's largest circle of cronies do you believe will receive clemency? And finally, Do you think that he'll actually go through with giving himself a preemptive self-pardon?
0: You know, I I think it's, it's a tough calculation with Trump because you know better than any of us that he doesn't seem to have loyalty to anybody. So I don't see pardons ever being given as a way of rewarding loyalty. I do see them being given as a way to buy silence, right? Which makes them corrupt. I happen to think that we need to take a maiden legal voyage in court and attack a corruptly delivered presidential pardon. You know, the Ex parte Garland case, Supreme Court in 1866, they said, listen, this the courts have the authority to decide the issue of the scope of a presidential pardon. I would suggest that that also means they can decide the legality, the validity of a presidential pardon, but the courts have never gone there because they've really never been asked to go there. Well, we need to ask them to go there and we let the chips fall. Um, so I, I think again, 51% of me says the pardons are going to be delivered broadly to a whole bunch of people who he thinks might be able to say something bad about him. So in essence, pardons to buy their silence. You know, and I think the the stone commutation is, I think, maybe the easiest one to attack as being, Uh, corrupt, not only corruptly delivered, but I believe the act of delivering the sentence commutation to Stone was in and of itself a crime, not just a bad pardon or a corrupt pardon, but delivering it was actually part of an ongoing criminal conspiracy to obstruct justice. Because, I mean, the way that thing played out, it couldn't have been more transparent because you've got Roger Stone acting as the Trump campaign's access point to WikiLeaks. That was Steve Bannon's testimony at the truck.
1: It was my testimony. Yours yours
0: as well. I was sitting in the courtroom for much of the Roger Stone case. So Roger Stone was the access point. Roger Stone then went before Congress and lied. And as Amy Berman Jackson announced at his sentencing, you didn't lie to stand up for Donald Trump. You lied to cover up for Donald Trump. All the while Donald Trump is tweeting out to Roger Stone, stay strong, don't snitch, snitches are bad. And three days before Roger Stone was sentenced to report to, was was scheduled to report to the Bureau of Prisons to begin his 40 month sentence, he gave that interview to Howard Feynman. He said, Mr. President, I didn't flip on you. I could have, would have gone easier on me, but I didn't. Now, you know what I want? I want a pardon. I want a sentence commutation. Later that day, Donald Trump signed the sentence commutation. I've just described an ongoing obstruction of justice charge and a conspiracy to obstruct justice. Again, give me 30 minutes. Let me go stand in front of a jury and try to prove it. That one, I think, really needs to be attacked. And that would be a good way to set the judicial stage for attacking other criminally delivered pardons. And to answer your other question, will he try to pardon himself of course he will. He's already stood up and said, I have the absolute right to pardon myself. I disagree with that. Courts, I predict, and I would bet two bucks on this, which is always my limit when I'm betting, I would bet that the Supreme Court will strike that down. Why? Because if they wanted to make him a king, they would have done it back in July when they were deciding the tax case, right? Even his own two draft picks, Gorsuch and Kavanaugh, said, you're not a king, get back to the court in New York and behave like every other litigant, right? So they're not willing to put them above the law. If they say a corruptly delivered presidential self-pardon is lawful, that would be the Supreme Court putting a corrupt president above and out of reach of the judiciary, including the Supreme Court. They would be neutering themselves. They would be making themselves a second-class branch of government. The Supreme Court will never, never decide that a self-pardon is lawful.
1: Well, let's not forget, That Trump lied as well. Something that I ended up pleading guilty to, which was lying to Congress, which I did at the direction of and with the assistance of not just Donald Trump, but Ivanka and Jared and their lawyers and Jay Sekulow. But Trump lied as well in his um, congressional statement that he gave in his responses to Congress. And what he had done going to Paul Manafort is they were getting responses that Paul Manafort had given to the Mueller team in order to be able to draft something that stayed online. And one of the things that was discussed not only by me, but by Manafort was Roger Stone's involvement with Julian Assange. And I testified that I was in the office When Roger Stone called, Trump put him on speakerphone, and he stated, emphatically, he goes, listen, I just got off the phone with Assange. In a couple of days, there's going to be a massive dump of emails that's going to really destroy the Clinton campaign. It's going to really damage the Clinton campaign. And I testified to that. Now, Trump, of course, stated to the opposite, because that's what he is. He's a liar, right? And, you know. What about his family
0: members? You think he's going to pardon them?
1: Same thing. You know, which brings up baby, you know, baby prince over there, Jared Kushner. You know, Jared Kushner's off in Riyadh, hanging out with Mohammed bin Salman on a um, a farm that's out of the Riyadh area, that's not sanctioned by the government. He went by himself. That seems awfully odd. That after the killing of Khashoggi, of Jamal Khashoggi, that the only person that Mohammed bin Salman was willing to speak to, was Jared Kushner. I mean, if that in and of itself isn't sparking the attention of prosecutors or of the Democratic caucus, I don't know what would. And the conversations going on between Donald Trump and Vladimir Putin in Helsinki with nobody around him other than Vladimir Putin's assistant secretary. What's this all about? I mean, the biggest problem that I find... Is that as we all know, when presidents leave office, they're generally given national security clearance in order to get briefings and so on. And my biggest fear is that Donald Trump will take that information and use it for his own benefit. He will sell that information, he will just casually give it away. He'll sit there wanting to brag about something and slip out like he did with, uh, you know, about Israel. He doesn't care because he doesn't have the requisite knowledge of what it means to be a president. And he doesn't have any understanding of history. And that's the biggest problem.
0: Yeah. And I worry about what he might be willing to sell by way of national secrets that he's learned over the last four years because, you know, he's he's all about the grift is the way it looks. Um, I'm less concerned about the national security briefings when he leaves office because the president or the president's family is going to be traveling uh, internationally. They want to make sure the president is up on the climate in the political climate in the areas he might be traveling to. Or if form, if um, if the current president wants to consult with a former president about national security matters to get the former president's perspective and insight, how many then they'll be given a national security briefing. How many times do you think Joe Biden is going to want to pick uh, Donald Trump's brain for his keen insight on all things international? I, I don't see that happening. And when you talk about Jared Kushner being on his little trip over there, you know, I I, I think he's probably looking at not apartments but maybe non extraditable apartments over there looking for maybe where he and some of his family members can land in the event, you know, the, the feds come looking for them. You know, it sounds like crazy, you know, Hollywood spy movies that a president or his family might have to get out of town, might have to flee to a non-extraditable country. But I think with with this cabal, I think it's a possibility that they just up and leave.
1: Well, Glenn, let me thank you as we finish up our hour. I really want to thank you for your insight. Um, we have to, I guess, just stay tuned, you know, 30 days and counting until Captain chaos is out of office and we all get to hopefully regain our lives. Now that we have an adult in the white house and an administration that actually wants to do work for the country and not to grift for their own, you know, self profit. Um, I just, I want to thank you for your insight. I'm overwhelmed to be honest with you, because my head is now running in a thousand different directions Um, So again, thank you very much and stay safe.
0: Thanks, Michael. I appreciate you having me on. And I'm hoping that the national anxiety level is going to start to tick down because anxiety kills, it's corrosive. And Donald Trump has been kind of killing we the people in bits and pieces for four years. And it will be nice to exhale on January 20th.
1: Amen. And thanks again, Glenn. All right, Michael. And now for today's Mayor Culpa. I have spoken today at great length about how I believe the pardons delivered by Trump to his gang of criminal co-conspirators will likely go down in history as one of the greatest abuses of power and acts of corruption ever committed by an outgoing president. But what about those individuals who received the pardons themselves? They may be rejoicing tonight upon the Christmas miracle that set them free, Oh, thank thee kind and saintly Donald Trump, but believe me. Those pardons will prove to be nothing but a curse for those granted clemency from the president. I say this as a convicted felon and someone who would have benefited greatly from a Trump pardon. I am nonetheless grateful for the fact that my name was not on that list. To be pardoned by Donald Trump is not a badge to be worn with pride. Those men will have to live with themselves and the stench of corruption that will follow their names and their family's name for generations to come. To receive a pardon in that context is to forego the process of accountability that comes from prison in the first place. The one good thing to come from that awful place was my conversion away from the Trump cult. Locked away in solitary, having lost everyone and everything, for the first time I was forced to truly deal with myself and own the choices that I had made. Had I not been forced to do this, had I simply been pardoned by Trump, I would most likely remain enthralled by him to this day. Luckily, I was able to find my way back towards redemption. And thanks for listening. Maya Culper is brought to you by LSJ Media and Audio Up, in association with Midas Touch, and it's hosted by me, Michael Cohen, produced by Audio Up by Jimmy Jelnick and executive producer Jared Gustav, and it's edited by Tyler Dawson. Please stay tuned as we focus on the changing political moment and this unprecedented transfer of power. I'll be with you every step of the way. Mea culpa. Nothing but the truth. This is my mea culpa.